This podcast is brought to you by CyberAttacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Israeli election results are in and after five rounds, there is a clear winner and a clear loser. We have a lot to talk about. This is an early edition of Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian, usually in London, now on the road, covering different elections in Atlanta, Georgia. Unholy, two Jews on the news. Jonathan, hello. Hello. No shortage of news, Yonit. I think we've both, for completely different reasons, been up half the night. Um, I'm not going Luckily, it's audio. No one is going to see what we look like. But you had another marathon. <laughs> I mean, except I suppose the difference this time was instead of it being unresolved by the morning, the early hours of the morning, it became pretty clear at some point in the night. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been five election rounds in three and a half years. Um, I should apologize that I'm after a very long uh, broadcast, so I'm trying to put together nouns and verbs and might not always be successful. So yes, finally, after five rounds, I think we realized pretty early in the evening even, not that we knew who won, but because the voter turnout was so high and it was very clear, um, it, it's the highest since 2015, actually, it's 71.3% uh, came to the polls of all different uh, 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 cities and voters and, and you know, uh, ethnic groups, Everyone went to the polls. The minute we realized that, we knew that that something has shifted uh, and that we might end this uh, evening, this very long evening, a very long three and a half years with actually a clear victorious side. And and that's how we, we ended it. We, we should say, right, that there's a clear winner. And that man is Benjamin Netanyahu, who at the age of 73 managed to be the architect of the most dramatic political comeback, right? I mean, he really literally rose from the political dead to come back and become the, the next prime minister of Israel to form his sixth government. And comebacks are really hard in politics. They're rare, they're hard. Um, he has, and this is not his first comeback. I mean, this is not his it's first his third, rodeo. actually. <laughs> I mean, this is his third comeback. He has come back from the political dead before. He was counted out in those battles. When he lost to Ehud Barak in 99, he was counted out against Ariel Sharon uh, in the early noughties. People thought this guy was over. And he doesn't know how to, he doesn't know when he's beaten. That's a great strength in politics. You know, in Britain, Boris Johnson tried to make a comeback. He, he faltered at the very first stage. He didn't, didn't make it out the blocks. Uh, it is a hard thing to do. Um, and Netanyahu has done it. Um, I think listeners to Unholy were braced or prepared, depending on how you look at it, for this outcome. We've been talking about the fact that the whole election was essentially about the question of to be be or not to be be. Will, would he come back or not? And you did warn us, you always said um, that if one, even it only would have to be one of the two parties in the anti-BB block, uh, particularly one of the parties of the left, if, if, if they fell below the threshold, that cutoff point you have to clear in order to make it into the parliament, into the Knesset, then it would be game over and Netanyahu who would be prime minister. You said that. And Meretz, one of those small left-wing parties, did, it seems, as you and I talk, fail to clear that threshold. 
Yeah, and of course, I mentioned voter turnout because what it means, uh, Jonathan, is that the higher the voter turnout, the higher the threshold becomes, the more votes you need to pass the threshold. So that became a problem, a very urgent problem for some of those uh, parties. We don't yet know. We should say we're recording this at around 1.30 p.m. Israel time. We don't yet know because 84% of the votes have been counted, whether merits did or did not uh, uh, cross the threshold. This is this makes a difference. It doesn't make a difference. Netanyahu is the next prime minister. It makes a difference. What kind of coalition will he have? Will it be a very comfortable minority uh, majority for him, like a 64 or 65 seat coalition? Remember, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, has 120 seats. Or will it be a more difficult to manage, unruly coalition of 61, 62? That we don't yet know. But yes, it is definite that what we knew walking in, and we talked about this on the podcast, is that there is a very big difference between the right that came very disciplined. Everyone was behind Netanyahu, a homogenous bloc, and the left that came very, very, you know, kind of undisciplined. And really, you know, to just think of the fact, and everyone's blaming Lapid, and we will talk about the mistakes he made because he did make mistakes. But just think of the fact that you're trying to run for prime minister when there are at least two people in your bloc. One of them is Benny Gantz, who says, I can become prime minister and I have better chances than Lapid. And the other is Merav Michaeli, who didn't say it out loud, but felt it and gave him the endorsement, you know, as warm as, I don't know, Hershey's would give M&Ms, uh, really the final days of the of the elections. Merav Michaeli being the did leader of the Did you like my chocolate metaphor? I did. I always like, it shows me what you've been I living spent, on for I the last 24 hours. I spent 10 hours just eating chocolate. That's why I have a chocolate I, metaphor. No, Merav, Merav Michaeli obviously being the leader of the Israeli Labour Party, and there'll be some grief that she will be getting for not having done a pact with the party we mentioned before, Meretz, um, because it's all about the kind of coherence and discipline no votes on the right were wasted. That's a big part of the story for Netanyahu. If they vote, if you voted for a right-wing party, you were voting for a party that cleared that threshold and will now make it to government. And the same cannot be said on the other side. We're going to get into, you know, the blame game. Obviously, we'll talk about all of that. But I do think it is noticeable, the contrast, because that hom- homogeneity, that coherence on the right, on the BB block, was not coincidental. It was born of a political decision and effort by Netanyahu, who played matchmaker for the parties of the far right. And again, we said on the podcast that the story that I thought would go internationally around this event would be the success of the far right parties. And I think that is going to be a big story. Um, Itamar Ben-Gvir and his allies getting, what, 13, 14 seats, I mm-hmm. suppose. The fi- votes are not finalised. 14, we're not that, final counting, but yeah, 14. Yeah, I mean, even, even, but that was not an accident. That happened because Netanyahu essentially knocked heads together, forged that mini-coalition, and Yaelapid did not do the same. It, maybe he didn't have the kind of political juice to do it, the clout to do it, but he did not do the same among those left parties. Um, the, the area where, as well that made a huge difference, uh, we've only briefly touched on it but the on the arab party's side again if one of those um had not dropped below the threshold the arab nationalist party balad didn't make it if they had cohered together also in a block analogous on the other side of the spectrum to the far right parties if they had held together that too would have meant no anti bb votes were wasted and instead thousands maybe tens of thousands of votes went nowhere and made and seems to have made the difference between Netanyahu being prime minister and not because if both parties had cleared the threshold it would have been dead, deadlock and as you say uh, made the difference in terms of the kind of strength he'll have as prime minister he is going to be a strong prime minister with a big by Israeli terms big majority 
Yeah, I, I want to um, sort of pick up on what you said. Look, this election was lost for Lapid on September 15th. That was the day that the lists were finalized, and that is when he lost. The results were in yesterday, but he lost on September 15th for two reasons that you mentioned. One is that Merav Michael, he... he couldn't manage, uh, you know, Mirab Michaeli was being intransigent. She didn't want to run with Meretz, uh, which is left of the Labour Party. Just let's give a perspective for our listeners here, right? 1992, Labour Party, Yitzhak Rabin, and Meretz ran and got together 56 seats. Today, four seats for the Labour, and we don't yet know if Meretz passes. Now, that's a bit of a manipulation on the on the data, because obviously Yeshatid by Lapid took a lot of the left-wing voters that used to vote for Labour. But this is this is what happened on September 15th. Uh, Meretz and Labour did not run together. The lists were finalized. And the second thing that happened, and you mentioned this, the Arab, uh, the joint Arab list split uh, apart. Hadash Tal, which is more the communist party and maybe the middle-class Arab party, ran separately from Balad, the Arab nationalist party. That burned, and we now know, more than 120,000 votes if they had run together. And of course, we should say Balad is much less palatable for the Jewish electorate. But if they had run together, that could have formed a block that would have stopped Netanyahu. Not all of this was Lapid's con- under his control, but surely part of it. Another thing that we don't talk about enough of why Lapid lost, the man who wasn't there, Jonathan. I remind you, the man who four months ago was still Israel's prime minister, Naftali Bennett. And if Lapid had done everything in his power, and he didn't, to keep Naftali in the, Bennett in the game, I think Naftali Bennett could have brought in the vote of the soft right and of the soft religious nationalists who in this election had nowhere to go. I'm talking about the right wing that doesn't want to vote for Netanyahu. They didn't have anywhere to go. No one really took their votes. And I think that if Naftali Bennett was still a player in this game, that could have been a different a different uh, story. Very interesting, because I just assumed his withdrawal from politics was non-negotiable. But you're making the point that Lapid could have leaned on him, worked on him, and kept that party in the game, and they would have taken maybe four or five seats. Only, but that could have been enough. Um, I suppose there was the Gidon Saar New Hope Party. That's a sort of right-wing anti-Bibi party, but it's a... Right, but they ran with Gantz, and the minute Gantz talked about a Palestinian state, that lost that moment of being a a soft right party. Just think about this again. In Israel, a party run by a former chief of staff, Benny Gantz, it has another former chief of staff, Gadi Eisenkot, got less seats in this election than Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich of the extreme right. And we should make this note again and again. Never in the history of this country has the extreme right received this much power in the Israeli parliament. So we should talk about that. There have been warning signs of how this is going to play internationally. Friends of Israel politically, um, including the United States, uh, Senator Robert Menendez, others have been warning that they will pause before embracing a government that includes the likes of Itamar Ben-Gvir. I'm also thinking just at the level of, you know, social media, there are so many things that are sort of quotable um, from uh, Ben-Gvir and and his partner, Betalel Smotrich, um, saying, you know, Ben-Gvir saying, I don't like Arabs, I don't like to be Next to them, uh, Smotrich, one of his partners, is a, is a you know unabashed, unapologetic homophobe. These are things that will be you know they're memes, they're tweetable. There are they are going to be very easy for people to say. How can Joe Biden shake the hands of of ben, uh, Bibi Netanyahu when in Netanyahu's government is a minister who has said this, done this? 
uh, etc. Um, the policies uh, of uh, ben Gvir, we've talked about his supporters chanting, and again, it's happened last night, death to the Arabs, and people heard it at this victory party, and then the party spokesman says, no, they were shouting death to the terrorists, this same game again. This is a party, uh, I would call it, um, you know, you're in a different position from me, you are studiedly impartial, but I can say that I consider this to be a party of Kahanism and therefore Jewish fascism, followers of the late Rabbi Meir Kahana, who was assassinated um, in 1990. These are his political heirs. I mean, Itamar ben until recently, had a picture on his wall of Baruch Goldstein, the murderer of, I think it was 29 Muslims mm -hmm. at prayer in Hebron in a mosque in 1994. This is a mass murderer, and his picture is in an honoured place, or was, in the home of this man who now will be a minister and a powerful one in the Israeli government. That causes huge problems, I think, for uh, Israel's defenders, for its diplomats, for its political standing, and for the country itself. Um, and what, what will then be unleashed? But I should, I, I'm keen to hear from you on this particular point, what you think this government is going to do. But I mean, mm -hmm. you know, just the symbolism of the people's back catalogue. But they've now. He's now. He's if he if if things go as we're saying, he will have the muscle Netanyahu to do a lot. Uh, he'll have a big majority. What's going to be in his sights? Do you think? Well, I I, I want to pick up on the Itamar Benkvil thing, and then and and that will lead us into what Netanyahu uh, uh, plans. Look, I, one of the smarter campaign strategists said to me something on air yesterday that I I sort of understand. He said the campaign that the center left. Uh, had against Itamar Ben-Gvir was a boomer campaign. I asked him why. He said, look, 30 years ago, right, we should remember this, for my generation, really the most important event that happened in our early adulthood was the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. As you said, uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, a, a radical uh, person at the time, celebrated the murder and a, was a part of the incitement uh, that led to the murder, right? And that is what the center-left used against him in this election. But again, if your voters are 48% under the age of 34, they don't really remember this event that was so seminal for my generation. So, so that is important to understand. And again, I think there's a delayed reaction here. I'm just going a little bit into the weeds of why he was elected and why he is now so powerful. Look, remember the big tectonic shift in Israeli politics is 1977, right? The left that has led the country from 1948 loses power to Menachem Begin. Why did that happen? In, in, in a way, it was a delayed reaction to the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And here as well, I think Itamar Ben-Gvir getting so much power is a delayed reaction to what we saw in Guardian of the Walls and the skirmishes between the Jewish and the Arab community. Everywhere Itamar Ben-Gvir would come with his loaded gun, either metaphorical or real. And, and most of the Israeli population would look at it and say, this is a provocation. But a lot of others would say, oh, look, he's showing up everywhere. Right. So that added to his popularity. Now, this is important to understand because this is a man that the minute he steps into government and he wants to be the head of the, the, the minister who holds the police portfolio, he has a lot of big dreams, right? I think that might maybe squeeze him down to his actual size and not to this a very big party that he now is one of their uh, leaders. Now, you asked about the plans, and the reason I went through this very long route of talking about Itamar Benkfield is that one thing that we keep forgetting when we talk about him, and you talk about him, and we talk about him being an extreme right with uh, relationships to the Arabs and the Palestinians, all through that prism. Remember, this is also a very religious 
party, right? Netanyahu's coalition in general is going to have half of its members. First of all, it's going to be nine women, and that's it, uh, because the ultra-orthodox parties don't have women. All of the coalition will have almost a majority of ultra-orthodox and ultra-orthodox nationalists. This is this party. And, the, and remember, Batsal Smotrich says, I want to have a halachic state. I don't think it's going to happen immediately. But this is also important for uh, diaspora Jews, all the issues of conversion, the Kotel compromise, all of these issues. That is not the government that is going to move this forward. So that is an answer to your plans. More importantly are the plans for the legal system. This is a coalition that on the one hand, you have these people who want to change the legal system because they think it's full of leftist judges, their words, not mine, all of the Bezalel Smotrich coalition, and Netanyahu, who according to his detractors, wants to change the judicial system because he's standing trial, right? He is accused uh, in, in court for three cases of corruption. That will come together uh, to weaken the judicial system in this country. Um, I remind you, Jonathan, that we don't have two houses of parliament. The, the only thing we do have is judicial oversight. Every basic law can be changed in this country with a simple majority. That is going to be the biggest issue as we begin Netanyahu's uh, sixth government. That was a very long answer. I'm going to like shut up for a while now and you talk. No, I think the judicial thing is big. Um, and there was a strong op-ed just on the eve of the election. Uh, Dahlia Scheindlin wrote a piece in the New York Times saying, this is what's at stake, an attack on the judiciary. And this has a long history. I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, the, the place of the Supreme Court as the last bulwark defending Israel's uh, in effect, unwritten constitution, but often restraining the decisions of the elected parliament and saying uh, that you know, and, spa- uh, and and standing to defend the interests of the minority, whoever the minority are. Uh, now, some of that is eroded in recent years, but it has always irritated the right. It's irritated Netanyahu for very direct reasons, given his own legal entanglements and the corruption charges that he faces and the trial that still goes on, even today against him. Uh, But the independence of the Supreme Court is a thorn in the side of the political right. They believe it represents, I think if you ask someone like Smotrich, it represents a kind of secular uh, sovereignty that he doesn't you know, that he doesn't uh, recognize. He thinks the ultimate sovereignty, as you said, should be the Torah and Halakha. Um, so it's been in their sights for a while, and now there are the numbers to do something about it. And there are specific proposals out mm-hmm. there, you know, to make it such that decision the Supreme Court loses its power, for example, of judicial review, namely to strike mm-hmm. down decisions of parliament and also to start getting politicians involved in the more involved more involved than they are now in the appointment of judges this is a really serious erosion that could happen i i I agree with you about you know perhaps ben gvir this may be a flash in the pan and in two three years time it shrinks back to being a sort of normal sized fringe party and you know you have to be patient waited out but this could be a long-term thing that leaves a long-term legacy israel always prides itself you know you talk to a, a committed Hasbaraist, you know, a sort of propagandist for Israel. They always say Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East, and they will also talk point soon to Israel being a society of laws, the rule of law. That is uh, under threat. The other thing I just wanted to pick up on what you said, which I think is important, is how this is going to go down with diaspora Jewish communities. Itamar Ben-Gvir said just two years ago, November 2020, I don't want reform Judaism. Israel needs to be Jewish. Now, remember, most of America's Jews 
uh, identify in terms of synagogue affiliation, if they have one, with non-Orthodox forms of Judaism. And they, that is massively important in terms of recognition of their marriages, of conversion status, and so on. Um, and so that is going to be a real fault line. Uh, and Netanyahu likes his relationship with America. These days, perhaps he prefers the relationship with American Christians than he does with American Jews. But these are going to be divisions and uh, to come. Uh, I think. And uh, and lastly, I think you were absolutely right to mention the Rabin assassination. I think you would have been, you talked about a seminal moment in your for your generation. You'd have been at the very young end of that generation at the time. Maybe that's partly the impact it had. Um, but there was Ben Gvir, as you said, inciting. And this this line, you know, he got very close as a sort of an attacker to the car carrying the former prime minister and said, we got to his car, we'll get to him too. And that was a matter of weeks before the assassination. So Ben Gvir is really marked by that episode. It's not a coincidence. Um, and he now is going to have not just a, a, a you know, seat in Parliament, which would have been shocking. Which he already has, by ago, the way, since the last election, a, of course. Right, yeah. right, of course. Um, but, but, you know, not just um, uh, presence in the Knesset, but now um, uh, a, big, a big seat at the cabinet table. Yeah, I, I mean, look, <laughs> I think it's safe to say that the left, um, you know, I was just thinking we were talking about Itamar Ben-Gvir and Yitzhak Rabin, and you look just at the, the symbolism of it, right, that Yitzhak Rabin's Labour Party had four seats in this election. Itamar Ben-Gvir is now uh, heading a party with Bezalel Smoltich of 14 seats. That says something about what happened to uh, Israeli society. Look, this is a day in which the Israeli center and the Israeli center left uh, wake up let's say, very close to what they would imagine their nightmare scenario, right? Again, we don't yet know how powerful Netanyahu will be uh, in this government. Again, we're not sure if it's a 61-62 coalition or a 64-65. There's a world of difference between the two. But definitely having a coalition that has uh, Netanyahu and uh, the ultra-Orthodox and the extreme right is a nightmarish scenario for the center and the center-left. What can I tell you? Democracy is not something that you can out choose to be not a part of if, if your side uh, loses. But I do think that the Israeli left needs to have some sort of soul searching because it doesn't make sense to come back to every election and have this moment where you have to beg the voters, right? You do this, what we call the Gewalt campaign. The Meretz did. Labor didn't do, by the way. Uh, but never mind. But, but to have the situation where you beg the voters to come vote for you and save you, that doesn't make sense. You once had an ideology. You once had a plan for Israel. Now, if your only plan is let's get rid of Netanyahu, well, you've tried. You've been trying to do that for five years, and instead of getting Netanyahu with moderates like Kachlon, you have now Netanyahu with the extreme right like Ben Gvir. So maybe there's some soul searching here for the Israeli left. I definitely agree with that. I think that absolutely has to be. I wondered what kind of uh, flack the leaders of Meretz and uh, and particularly Labour, because it seems like Merav Michaeli for Labour was the obstacle to doing a deal. Um, that's a classic case of the narcissism of small difference, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, for them, I can imagine it's huge, historic, ideological. They feel this huge gap. This was, you know, when the, the rise of Ben Gvir and Smotrich's party of, 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 of Jewish fascism, um, and I do commend people, and you say, you know, it's partly generational. If you don't know the, what, what the impact of Mayor Kahana and what kind of person he was, 
do you know look up um, some stuff about him because this is the these are his children politically, um, and they are back in that threat should have made um, people on the left and centre left put aside all their differences and uh, and have a united front against that danger. They really should have done that. And I'm, you know, we talked about it actually um, a year or so ago when the previous, the outgoing coalition, or more than a year, was assembled. It would have been, right, when there is that soul-searching, there has to be a place in there for Arab political representation. There just has to be. You cannot have a situation where 20% of the electorate are somehow not fully included in the calculation, especially if you're the side of, of politics that um, is opposing this sort of chauvinist nationalism and fascism. I mean, you, you, they, that has to be yes. part of the story. And also and, it has uh, to be, you know, I, you know two-sided. Which is important. Yeah. Ram is the I first agree. party, the United Arab List, the first party in the history of, of Israel, Israeli politics said, I want to be part of this uh, uh, game. And when you think of a party like Khadash Tal, who is sitting at the sidelines celebrating when the Bennett government fell, right? Celebrating with Ben Gvir and Smotrich, not with them, but the both sides were celebrating. And where are they now? Yes. And that makes you think. You know, they went to some sort of so to, to, to extremes to topple this government. It also, again, it's a two-sided uh, yeah. um, relationship. No, no, I agree. I, but, I, but, but I mean something that goes beyond just elec at election time trying to cobble together a deal. I'm talking about a deeper cultural shift, which begins to see, or not begins, but sees Arab citizens as, a, as fully, on the left, I know the right are not going to see it this way, but the left have to start saying Arab citizens, Palestinian citizens of Israel, are full citizens, they're fully legitimate partners. There are those parties, you know, Ayman Alder, the founder of the joint list. You talked about those middle class uh, activists. But 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 uh, even there, I'm making my own mistake. I'm not talking about political level. I'm talking, you know, at the grassroots level, you have to begin to build in um, alliances. It will take mm -hmm. decades of work. But actually, you cannot imagine the situation where you know, Jewish Zionist parties are going to try and ever cobble together some kind of majority to govern the country. They're just not going to be able to do it, um, given the change in the country over those three decades. I mean, the one crumb of consolation I would take from your point about how much has changed in three decades is things can change. I mean, they have changed in this direction, this steady march rightward over, over those decades, but things can change in another direction. But Palestinian citizens of Israel absolutely have to be part of that. And as I say, I think that will have to happen at the cultural level first almost. It will be led by that and then the politics. Yeah, it's interesting that when uh, Smotrich, I remind you, that there was that Netanyahu tried to form a government last time around with Ram, with the United Arab List, Mansour Abbas, and Smotrich was the person who prevented it. He had two reasons for that. And I think it's interesting. One thing he said, they support terror, right? But the second thing he said is more interesting. He said, if we make this kosher, if we allow for an Arab party to be part of the government, the left in Israel will always win. And I think that is an interesting point that he made. It kind of got, you know, maybe hushed in the whole din of the elections. But that is what he realized. He's a very savvy politician. And what you're saying is, yes, this is something that the left needs to realize, that you have to bring in the Arabs and those kinds of parties. Again, it's a difficult thing to do. Remember, Khadashtal came out after the uh, killing of, of uh, terrorists in Nablus and said these people are, are uh, martyrs. So that makes it very hard for the Jewish population to bring them in. It's not a simple... Yes. 
it's incredibly hard. I don't deny that at all, how hard it is. I get the, the sort of cultural shift this would entail. But, um, but Smotrich's premise there, that, that we, you know, that it would make them kosher. How can you say, not about the political parties and their leaders, I understand the problems with that, but you have to be able to say full citizens of the country have to be, by definition, kosher participants in the democratic process they have to be and i you know i would say that the israeli left have not fully grasped that truth over decades i'm i'm talking really since the founding of the state 40s 50s 60s 70s they have not grasped that i'm not you know obviously we know that from the right but that is the big and its diaspora communities will have to do the same this is a country one in five of its citizens are not jewish and the, you know before we even get to the West Bank occupation, etc. Citizens of Israel, of course, by definition, must be kosher, i.e., legitimate partners in the democratic process. And it may may be about appealing or appealing to some of those Arab citizens away from their leaders who make the kind of comments you're talking about, and giving them a place at the table. I think you know that could have been Yair Lapid could have done a lot. He and Bennett to do that to do to make it normalize it to make it look more and more legitimate. How can it be so legitimized and normalized that Israeli Jews go happily to Dubai, you know, celebrating the Abraham Accords, love, loving posing with their new, you know, uh, 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 friends in the region, and not say it's equally legitimate, more legitimate, because it's democratic to sit there with, you know, friends, neighbors, fellow citizens in their own country. This has to shift. And this election, which, again, I can say it, this fills me with gloom, the outcome of this election, uh, that has to be a wake-up call to that, you know, not just the politicians, but to citizens of Israel themselves. They have to include their neighbours. Yeah, and just, you know, we can go on and on about this, but the one thing I, I just wanted to mention is just to think about the fact that in the past three and a half years, Israel went through, like the rest of the world, a covid pandemic, right? A once in a hundred years pandemic, two wars in Gaza, five elections, and still, still, even today, there is no change in the blocks. It's still pretty much 60, the anti-Bibi block, 60, the Bibi block. True, the Bibi block got luckier this time. As we said, they were well prepared, but it's still, still pretty much tied. That is pretty amazing. Like not a lot has changed really in the political equilibrium. That's 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 pretty remarkable. Yeah, it may not feel that way to the people on the <laughs> losing side this well, uh, what, is, today. what is that line that Obama always quotes from Martin Luther King, right? That the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. I, I hope I'm remembering this accurately. I really don't have a lot of sleep in my body, but no, still, that's impressive. you know, it is, it's, it's, it's that. That is what I think that that part of Israel I has am, to cling into. Up as to it happens, I am in Atlanta, the city of Martin Luther King, and mm -hmm. have driven along Martin Luther King Jr. Drive and the John Lewis Freedom Parkway. So it's resonant today that you mention those names. And yeah, the other thing, they this will be a perhaps uh, uh, heartening for those on the Israeli left feeling dejected today. Um, I said to one of the, uh, so a black activist in, the, in this state who's working hard to get the black vote out, uh, who runs a group called Black Voters Matter, 
And she, I said to her, look, you know, the polls are saying it could be bleak for your side um, in this election. Are you going to give up? And she went into just the most fantastic answer about given everything else we've gone through, you know, from slavery through to lynching and so on. Do you think we really give up? We just pick ourselves up and fight the next day. So the, the line from Martin Luther King about the arc of the universe being long, that resonates for where I am. Maybe that will cheer up those people who feel that they are on the losing side uh, in Israel today because they get to live to fight another day. So we have um, some awards to give out. We observe our tradition no matter what's going on with uh, the rest of the world. I'm going to take the wheel here, Yoni, because you have basically been up all night broadcasting to the nation. So it's fair that um, I do give you a little pass for this. Um, it's very generous you of you, have, Jonathan. You, you have had your eye on other matters for, well, I was going to say 24 hours. It's probably more like 48 hours you've been uh, on air. So I thought we would give a chutzpah award um, to a candidate in the midterm elections that, um, that I am here to cover here in the United States, uh, an evangelical Christian who's a, a candidate for uh, the House in Texas, uh, a man by the name of Johnny Teague. Um, he's the Republican nominee for Texas's seventh district. But he has a sort of life as on the side. He has a side hustle, besides being an evangelical pastor, of publishing um, books, sort of amateurish fiction. Uh, and, in 19, and in 2020, he published The Lost Diary of Anne Frank, a novel, imagining Anne Frank's final days in Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. Um, I think that would be enough, actually, to qualify him for a chutzpah award, thinking that More he than could, enough. you know... <laughs> He can pick up where she left off. But get this, in his account, Frank in her Anne Frank in her dying and last days seeks to embrace Christianity. She sees the word of Jesus before she is murdered by the Nazis. He defends it saying this is a book that picks up where her original journey left off. And he says he interviewed Holocaust survivors and visited the Anne Frank house. But there he, he, he has his Anne Frank character saying, I would love to learn more about Jesus and all he faced in his dear life with a capital H for he. Where is the Messiah? Did he come already and we didn't recognize him? Every Jewish man or woman should ask, she says. So in other words, he has decided that he has the right to ventriloquize Anne Frank and have her telling Jews, get with the program and accept Jesus into your lives. We know there's a whole long thing of this, of evangelical Christians just not dropping it and particularly wanting to uh, recruit Jews. But this man wants to seek high office and to go for, uh, to wade into the Holocaust and to think he has the right to channel the voice of Anne Frank. Outrageous in, in every way and certainly uh, beyond chutzpah, I would say. Um, and then also staying with the United States, because that's where I am, I think um, we have a, a collective Mensch Award to hand out to a group of, well, to my eye, they look like Jewish teenagers, I think Jewish students, who lined up in the uh, visible front row seats for a game of the Brooklyn Nets basketball team, a home game on Monday, and wearing, wearing matching blue shirts, which just said in plain white letters on the front, fight anti-Semitism. And they, eight, eight fans did that in a line, making sure they were absolutely visible court side. And they did that so that they would be noticed by the guard for the Brooklyn Nets star player Kyrie Irving, who had posted last week a link to an anti-Semitic video online. 
um, and they thought they would take this stance, or a, a video they thought were considered anti-Semitic, they thought they would take this stance by catching his attention. Um, and he appears to have done that. He appears to have noticed them and seen them. They said he gave them a kind of sarcastic thumbs up. The reason I thought we would give them the Mensch Award is not so much the gesture, although, you know, many people will admire that. But one of the leaders of the group said, the reason we did it, we don't fight hate with, uh, sorry, we don't fight with hate, we fight with love. And addressing the, their favourite basketball player, we still love you, but we have to wear the shirts. I quite like that message. I think the idea that this wasn't an aggressive act, it was they took a stand because they felt they had to, um, but they still did it as fans of the team and of that player. Um, I think, yeah, you know, four of them, very young, taking a stand like that, good for them. So a mention of the week to uh, those eight um, fans of the Brooklyn Nets who took a stand at their at court side. Very nice. Week. See, you've, you're left to your own devices. You choose great chutzpah mensch. This could be a tradition. I'll just sit the sidelines and you do the whole thing. Just no, the ending. I'm, like I'm not going to let you do that. Um, <laughs> that you're, you have the exhaustion pass. Well, I was going to say once every six six months when you have another general election. Uh, but you actually may... We, it may be several years before there's another election given the outcome of this one could be, because could be. it will be it should be uh, by by those numbers a stable coalition um, if you have uh, enjoyed or at least found stimulating and helpful uh, perhaps even therapeutically this episode of Unholy remember do tell your friends you can find us at Unholy Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook do comment there we often pick up the points you make there um, and we have some thank yous and we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer Omer Primatz Nir Yamin Rom Atik and Yair Bashan and Jonathan, thank you for being so patient with me during this whole election season. Now I'm going to open the very long list of things to do after the elections, and we shall obviously meet next week. I think first on that list is getting a good night's sleep, Yoni. That is <laughs> I essential. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Mr. Somehow you managed to hold it together for this, but you need to catch up on sleep, and we will catch up with all of you next week. So see you then, Yoni. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.